Ladies and gents, welcome back to the Relax Running Podcast. Tyson Popplestone here. Hey, this one's coming at you a little bit later in the week, Friday evening as I record this. I'm about to post it, so it's not too far away. Sorry if you've been hanging out all week for it, but I can promise you it's going to be worth the wait, as it always is with the great man, John Quinn. Now, if you haven't heard John before, I think it is it could be his fourth time on the show. If you're new here, however, he's an exercise physiologist. He's an Olympic track coach. He works with a number of the top sprinters up in New South Wales. And how's this for a busy schedule? He's also the exercise physiologist for the GWS Giants, which is an AFL team, if you're not from Australia, or interested in AFL for that matter. And he's also uh, an exercise physiologist for the Penrith Panthers, which is uh, the same level uh, the same level of competition, but in rugby. So he's a, uh, he's a really busy man. And you can see why. He's, he's highly regarded for what he does and uh, there's there's no surprise to me that he's uh, that he's so heavily requested from so many clubs and individuals around Australia and the world. Uh, he worked with the Essendon Football Club from 1998 to 2008 under the guidance of Kevin Sheedy as the head fitness coach there. He also uh, had a previous stint at the GWS Giants, which he's uh, he's just reignited. So hey, this conversation, it's uh, it's really interesting. We speak a lot about the, the uh, mechanics of running. We speak a lot about the importance of technique, the importance of developing the right muscles. It's got a little bit of a focus on AFL at some points, but uh, the topics that we cover, uh, uh, they scale across really nicely to all sports. And he speaks to that in a little more detail. So uh, what I love about this conversation is he, he talks about a number of things which so many athletes don't pay any attention to when it comes to improving the running element of their game. And as always, he puts it in a way which makes it so easy to understand. Now, uh, in a particular part of the conversation, he mentions that you, the listener, uh, are welcome to get some resources off him if you just shoot him an email. So if you look in the show notes, I've entered his email there for you. So make sure if you're interested in what it is he's offering that you are, yeah, have a look in there and shoot him a message. So guys, quick reminder, if you're looking for a running coach, if you're looking for some guidance with your running training for a running-based sport, uh, I'm more than happy to help you out there. I've got a certain amount of athletes that I work with one-on-one each year, and there's still a few spots remaining. If you'd like to take it up, jump over to relaxrunning.com. Have a look around. If you've got any questions, shoot me a message just by clicking that contact button. It goes straight to my inbox. So, hey, would love to speak to you regardless of, of what level of performance or what level of competitor you are. Uh, we've got athletes who are brand new and we've got athletes who are who are trying to run some pretty fast marathons. So you're going to fit right in. But hey, enough from me. I really hope you enjoy this episode with the great man, Dr. John Quinn. <laughs> You had a you had a big day, have you? Mate, they're all big days. Yeah, I've, I've sort of got things uh, uh, all running into each other. It, it's a very important thing to be able to say no, but I haven't been very good at it lately. So I wasn't really anticipating going back to uh, work at GWS in the capacity that I am, and I certainly wasn't expecting to get involved with rugby league. So it sort of took uh, four days of the week, and I was already pretty much working six or seven. Um, and there's not 10 or 11 days in the week. So, but <laughs> remember, I'm doing my best to defy it. I remember talking to Dean Huffer and uh, before he he put me in contact with you and and one of the things he said was it was just so impressive to see you open your diary 
and see every line <laughs> of nearly every page just organized. And uh, he, he said, I've never seen so much writing on every page of someone's diary. <laughs> it is crazy, but, uh, I, you know, it's, and I've got to have it written down. Like for me, uh, I still use electronic diaries, but if it's it's got to be in my paper diary. I, I still like to be able to physically, tangibly touch it. Yeah, so, uh, I'm a bit the same. I've never been good with the, uh, with the iPhone diaries. I tried the calendar on the iPad for a while, but my, that my issue was I, I never had the technique down pat. So I tried to sync it from iPad to iPhone and something would mm-hmm. be on one device and it'd be missing from the other. And I was just missing random appointments that, <laughs> that I hadn't yeah. quite got across to my iPhone. So I'm a little bit old school in that sense too. Yeah, no, it can be a bit uh, a bit of a trick. And, uh, you know, when you've got, as you just said, an iPad, a home machine, uh, uh, I've got a Mac, I've got the laptop, I've got my phone. Uh, and then the other thing that happens is other people come on different platforms. So, you know, some people work on Outlook, other people work, uh, you know, through Messenger and, and so on. Yeah, it's not very, it's easy, I've found, to miss things. So I make sure that I've got it in front of me on paper. Yeah, no, very nice. Quinny, I know you I know you're flat out. So I just um I, does about 40 minutes work for you. Is that okay? Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. no, that'd be fine, mate. No, awesome. no well, I've blanked I've blanked the uh the uh afternoon off actually. No, not just for you. I had yeah. the afternoon free and I, I thought I'd get home and do a little bit of work, but I've got plenty of time and my only other appointment, which is one of the things I like, I've been working in a private store now for this is my sixth year. And out of the blue I got a um uh a, a a message this morning from one of the old boys uh would i be free to catch up and it's going to be tonight so yeah so i catch up with boys from this school that you know some of them six years ago they finished university now and in their jobs and uh um it's a unique program that they've got going it's at the scots college which is the brother school in melbourne you've got scotch up here at scots and it's probably one of the best private schools in the country if you go by um you know school fees i guess but it, and its location is uh uh, second to none but uh it's uh i've never heard of it anywhere else i'm basically come in i'm not part of the school i'm not associated with the school in any other way than this role and i mentor the boys one-on-one in year 12 every week i'll sit down with them and we talk about anything from uh how they're going at school to their uh helping them get their, their diaries organized uh helping them realize um uh, targets that they've set for themselves it might be things outside of school to do with sport it could be issues they're having at home with their parents issues with their girlfriend issues with bullying at school uh, getting a job concerns they've got about leaving job universities ATARs it can go anywhere and everywhere and my job is not to tell them what to do but to basically make sure they're going in the right direction and in many respects for these boys it's the first time they've had a mentor outside of their family outside of their dad in my case and uh, it's been a very powerful um, uh, role to have and one that I've, I've loved doing. And probably this is my last year doing it because of what we were talking about earlier, just can't fit everything in. And uh, that's probably going to come to an end at the end of this year for them, as in their year ends in August. So come August, that'll be the time to say goodbye to that. But it's been quite, a, quite an interesting role doing that one. So interesting, the different roles or the different facets of uh, the role of a, being a coach takes on. I was about to ask you how that actually even came about, but I'm going to take a wild guess that it started out with some strength and condition or athletics program and they realised you're a, uh, a man of many talents, which went a little bit on, well, beyond no, the training. No. I, I, was, I was actually working at a, uh, a clinic, a medical clinic up here, 
And uh, after I'd left the Giants and I was working in a medical clinic in the eastern suburbs of Sydney and the girl that owned the clinic, her husband, uh, sat in, he was waiting for his wife and he could hear me talking to one of the patients and he thought, we need this guy working with our students. He's like a coach. And then when he got introduced to me and he found out that I was a coach, uh, he said, well, this is what we want. I want a non-educator but a coach to coach the students that way. And, uh, yeah, that's how it started about six years ago. Gee, it's very interesting. I was actually going to pick your brain a bit about this today. It was, it was something I had sort of jotted down just about the, the different facets of what being a coach is because I know, obviously, well, I was introduced to you and I think my first point of interest with, uh, with you was, was just to hear about your approach to running training and the strength and the balance and the technique and mm. things like that. But I think it took about 46 seconds of our conversation for me to realize there was about four other things that I wanted to go into as well, which all turned mm. out to, to be separate podcast episodes. But um, how has the, I actually didn't even realize you were back with the Giants, Quinny. So, so what's the role yeah. you're, you're playing there this year? Well, I'm an exercise physiologist at, uh, at, at Giants, which is an interesting role. And I don't think there's uh, that uh, specific role in any other club and look at um Hats off to the club. Uh, it, it's been a, a fabulous club to me. When I uh, got sick with encephalitis back in 2014, the club really stood by me and uh, they created a role for me when I got out of hospital and probably before I was really in a position to do anything uh, meaningful. But the CEO, Dave Matthews, is still there and the footy manager, Gubby Allen, who's now with St Kilda, uh, they just structured up this role for me to come back in and uh, I, I was the academy director for a few years and, look, I think I had a positive impact in that role. I, I really did enjoy doing that. But uh, like all those things, it came to an end and it was time for me to move on and I thought that was the closure of my AFL chapter, if you like, other than maybe working with an individual here or there. But uh, they have had a new head of performance at uh, the Giants now for a couple of years. His name is Nick Pulos, and I'll meet with Nick, um, well, infrequently, you know, two or three times a year, and we just throw around ideas. And he and I have always got on quite well. Nick's background, uh, he was at Adelaide Crows for uh, several years, but he, he's probably more known in New South Wales, especially for his role with Rugby Australia, and he's with the Rugby Sevens. But Nick, had this idea of coming in and I could basically work alongside of him and we could bounce ideas off each other or he could bounce his ideas off me. And look, at the end of the day, the role is to get the most out of the players and let them perform to their maximum potential. And I think there wouldn't be too many high-performance coaches would go and get someone who's been in that industry for more than a decade to come in and work alongside of them and not feel threatened or insecure in their job. And I think that says a lot about Nick Pulos, and I think it says a lot about the Giants as well. Mm. So I'm there working alongside Nick to get the most out of each and every player, but in particular in regard to their injuries and in return to play. So when those players come back onto the pitch, they hit the ground running. They'll be uh, good to go. And, uh, well, we find out this weekend's our first game against the Sydney Swans, and uh, that is a genuine genuine derby when it's on here or if anyone's listening to this from uh sa and w a derby uh but it's a it's a genuine thing there's uh there's no love lost uh between the giants and the swans and so it will be on um in just a few days 
Well, Quinny, now I, I'm, I'm going to be honest, I feel a little bit torn because I want things to go well for, for your sake with the Giants. But as a Carlton supporter, having our first <laughs> win of the night last night, I'm, I'm quietly hoping you keep a few tricks up your sleeve because I would much rather you be down here with Carlton because uh, <laughs> I know the impact that you have on the athletes that you're working with. But that's interesting. So so Nick is looking after the high-performance element. Obviously, you've got a, a, an insane knowledge on the subject of running. Are you Are you having any input onto the structure of the preseason running yeah. and the in-season uh, running? No, no. All the structural work is, I leave that with Nick. That's his job. But I do uh, running work with the players and work on their mechanics and uh, uh, initially, you know, trying to identify areas where they might may be predisposed to, you know, unnecessarily unnecessary injuries just through poor mechanics. But uh, quite often before a skill session, uh, we'll proceed with a running mechanics or it may be something that uh, we can do in the gym where a uh, very good strength coach there in Brad Newton and uh, uh, I might uh, float around and give a bit of technical input or uh, we'll do some transfer work, it might be plyometric work, hurdle jumps or hops or whatever, and I'll coach them from a um, track and field point of view on how to get the most out of them. And uh, look, I, I've long said that uh, AFL players, they're like, uh, it's, it's AFL is like the 11th event in the decathlon. They're like, elite athletes most of these guys are elite athletes and they if if another sport had have called them when they were young young men and now young ladies i'm sure they would have most of them would have been quite successful at the highest level in whatever sport but they've chosen to go with afl so they're highly coachable extremely athletic very fit and very strong for me it's like a coach's dream Mm. i wouldn't have thought there'd be too many AFL clubs doing technical work. I've, I've played a, I played relatively high level. I had, I had a preseason down here with the Box Hill Hawks, which is uh, in the VFL, Quinny. I'm not sure. Mm. I'm sure you're probably familiar with the VFL being down here now and then. Um, yes. But you remember, uh, you're forgetting, aren't you? I was with the Bombers for 10 years. I, I am forgetting that. I actually, as I started mm. the question, I realised you're, you're a lot more experienced in the world of football down here than even I am. But I had a preseason with, with Box Hill Hawks after I, I finished as a middle distance runner back in 2000. And, 14 they were sort of going through a phase Mark Blitzars had just been picked up at Geelong and there was a little bit of a I guess a, a scoping look at athletes from other sports that they were trying to recruit I'm not sure if it's as strong now as, mm. as what it was then I felt like there was a real appreciation for middle distance runners when yes. Blitzars was picked up back in 2014 but but one thing that I was interested in was we we ran very hard for Box Hill I was I was really surprised at just how hard we trained because I'd always thrown out a bit of dirt to football and saying, mate, you want to know how a real athlete trains? <laughs> Come and train with a distance runner. And then I got down there and never spoke badly about them again because <laughs> we were doing some no. intense running sessions, but there was there was never any talk or interest in in the technique side of running, which which I thought was interesting for, for such a heavily yeah. running based sport. There was there was I no think, coaching, no guidance. Couple- I think a couple of the clubs sort of changed a bit of direction back uh, late nineties, early early two thousands, and you know talk about the Box Hill Hawks. Well, they were quite influenced by Bowden Babachuk, who was with Hawthorne for quite a long time, and Bowden came to them with a track and field background, and I and he brought that that um, athleticism, if you like, into their their preparation. And I was only telling someone the other day about my exposed to AFL like I, I'd never seen a game of AFL I'd, I'd grown up in country New South Wales playing rugby league and I'd played that for many years and even refereed it and coached a junior team and it was through coaching the junior team that I fell into coaching runners because uh, no one no one was in town to coach the young kids and I was a, a reasonable runner as in a sprinter for a country boy 
And uh, so I set up this athletics club and I had no idea, but our little athletics club was growing into quite a big unit. And we had, in fact, we were the fourth biggest club in New South Wales um, outside of Sydney. And uh, the boss of little athletics came knocking on my door to uh, see what we were doing. And he, I answered the door and he said, oh, I'm here to see your dad. And uh, I said, oh, he said, yeah, we're here to see John Quinn. And I said, no, that's me. And he goes, oh, really? <laughs> so I was only 20 at the time, not even. I was probably 19 at the time. And uh, anyway, from that, that's how I moved to Sydney and I started working for Little A's. I used to travel over 100,000 Ks every year from every part of New South Wales, from Broken Hill to Bondi, trying to get kids into athletics and, uh, and movement. And uh, uh, I was coaching at the same time and it probably just got a bit out of hand. I've never worked a day since and uh, just uh, been coaching people to move better, regardless of what sport they play, whether it be track and field, or in this case, AFL, um, rugby league or tennis or cricket or whatever. But um, I eventually I ended up in Tasmania as a high-performance coach there through the Australian Institute of Sport, and I was there for several years. And we only there were four key programs down in Tasmania. There was cycling, rowing, hockey and track and field. Well, if you were an, a talented athlete outside of that looking for some something to assist your program, with all respect to those sports, which I love, you're not going to get much help from rowing, cycling or hockey. So I would be sending them to the track and field guy. So I was getting all these people for, you know, speed development and even agility and, and uh, explosive jumping power and helping with their strength programs, whatever. And there were so many AFL kids coming and, and uh, you know, they're sort of saying, oh, go to the draft camp. I didn't even know what the draft camp was. I was like, oh, fantastic, have a great time. So off they'd go to that. And little did I know they were getting drafted and my name kept came up, coming up. And that's how I came to go to Essendon. And I kept thinking, I must watch a game before it starts. In these days, if this is 98, it was going to be on a VHS tape. I just didn't have the time. And between moving from Tasmania, getting my family settled there and getting a house to live in and learning the new job, I never did look at a game. So the very first game I ever saw was against Carlton at the MCG and I was the high performance manager. I didn't know how many points they got, which way they went or anything. Pathetic, really, and quite quite surreal. But the, what I'm trying to say, I'm never short of a word, you probably gathered. What I'm trying to say is I looked at AFL players through the eyes of an athletics coach. And what I saw and still do, these are high-performance athletes at that level that are akin to somewhere between a 400 and an 800-metre runner. Mm. And, uh, and then you've got your outliers that are more like 1,500-metre runners. But generally speaking, it's four and 800-metre runners. And when I first went to the Bombers, I started coaching the boys in that, in that light, that we did a lot of repeat efforts and a lot of lactic work and moved away from the long, slow distance running that had been fairly prevalent up until that time. And uh, uh, it was quite successful. And you know, I still didn't know too much about it, but the Bombers won the Premiership a couple of years later and there's so many factors, including a fabulous team, but uh, uh, I got um, uh, some of that reflected uh, credit and uh, it was um, a fabulous time at the Bombers, but I, I ended up, I was there for 10 years with, with uh, Essen before it came time to move on. Yeah, that's one thing I was really interested in and I think after our initial conversation, uh, even even further entrenched, I think some of the training programs, because I'm, I'm writing a lot of training programs for mostly community level football clubs and 
uh, I share that same passion as you of, of uh, you know, being a younger guy, I was just caught up with a number of clubs who are like, all right, you want to go out and get fit. Just even for me, when I was 14, 15, they'd say go for an 8K run, just nice and slow. <laughs> and it was all about just building that aerobic base. But then you'd get out to a football field and, you know, you'd have to sprint for 50 metres six times and I was exhausted. So it's um, that, that progressive overload uh, kind of training or that uh, that lactate threshold training is is something I'm fascinated by. But the uh like do you separate the groups like within a training group like the giants i know you said you're not you're you're not uh responsible for the actual running work right now but uh like are you getting the midfielders in one group and and sort of less key running plays in another group to do slightly different uh running training sessions or or how do you organize that structure because even at the box hill hawks when i was there i was interested to know that regardless of what position you play we're all doing eight by k and i thought this doesn't really correspond so well to the six foot 450 kilo fullback but for me it it was it was quite easy to understand oh look it's very easy if you've got one or two athletes to give them a bespoke program something that's just for them it certainly gets much harder when you've got say 40 or 50 players on your list and you're trying to create an individualized program for them and uh, if I'm really honest with you, it's a nonsense to suggest that you're giving a player an in- individualised program. You will give them a program that's got individuality within it, meaning, yes, you may break them into their um, areas, their event, uh, their, their position-specific area. So, for example, the midfield. They might need more repeat effort running than, say, your full forward might need in a game of football. But then you look at the individual and I don't think this matters whether you're talking about AFL or you're talking about soccer or you're talking about cricket or we're talking about a middle-distance runner or a sprinter. You look at the individual and you say, well, what what are you doing that's good and effective in getting you the result that you're currently getting? And what are the things that you're doing that can actually help make you better? What, what are you lacking? Is it that you need better upper body strength? Uh, is it that you need better shoulder mobility? Is it you need better hip mobility? Is it you need more explosivity? Do you need more explosive speed? Do you need more um, max velocity work? Whatever it is. And then you start to individualise the program according to that. So you have your general program, but then you have your individualised needs and requirements spinning off that. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. It is it is difficult. I even find that a lot of the clubs, even individuals will contact me and say, hey, uh, you know, what's the key focus? And I'm like, well, we really need to have a few more emails before I can try and offer any specific advice because it is difficult just trying to uh, figure out whether it's more of an aerobic thing or a speed endurance thing. But but one of the things I was interested in in picking your brain about, Quinny, and, and you've sort of mentioned a couple of times that it doesn't matter whether you're a footballer or a, a runner, there's certain elements of... Uh, the way that you move that that need to be focused on but uh, from a from a distance running or, or sorry uh, like a a more running based sport just like track mm. and field a 400 800 meter runner are there are there many things that you think uh, runners are doing better than footballers or or vice versa because i know one of the things that i was uh, to go back to box hill hawks one of the things i was impressed with with first of all, was their facilities to be able to offer ice baths and massage. And I thought the recovery side of the training was really well looked after. I thought they offered a lot of um, sort of guidance and help when it came to that. But the actual structure of the running was maybe a little bit of a downfall. Whereas uh, in the running world, I I always felt like the coaches I had were very good with technique work um, and and, and understanding of what needed to be developed in order to improve my performance. And they sort of complemented each other quite nicely. But I I felt like through my experience, they were they were mutually exclusive. Like, are there any things in your eyes that that one can glean from the other? 
Oh, I think it comes down to the individual, but um, one of the great strengths of a sp- an individual sport, we can be talking track and field or swimming, for example, is that it's easily easy to measure it and there's nowhere to hide. And that's one of the big things in, a, in an individual sport like that. The spotlight is always on you. Even if it's just you, you know whether you've run that time or you haven't. Mm. And if you go a little bit easier, it's evident because the stopwatch doesn't lie to you. In football, it's not so easy to measure. And if you're just having a bit of an an easy day, you can hide yourself in there. Uh, It's getting harder because now with GPS and it's in real time, it's getting harder to do that. But still, when you've got numbers, you can meld into the pack a little bit more. So I think the the sheer measurement factor, um, it's the honesty Mm. of a sport, the individual sport, and it's the self-honesty that drives you and it's a lonely existence in a, in sports, you know, team sports. You've got other people around you that, that you have your down times and your up times and you get to share that with others. When you go out and you've trained your butt off and for whatever reason you don't run to the expected level that you've had, there's nowhere to hide and there's no hole big enough to go into. And no matter what the coach says, the feeling in your gut, just you can't move past that. and it's very rare to have that level of despair that sometimes accompanies individuality in sport. As It's rare to get that in a game like AFL. In fact, the only time I ever recall experiencing that was when the Bombers played Carlton and they beat us by one point in the preliminary final in 99. And I'm sure that's bringing a smile to many Carlton fans of that era. It certainly didn't bring a smile to mine and I can imagine what it was like for the players. But... Generally speaking, I think it's that. I think it's just the honesty of uh, individual sport versus team sport and uh, finding those people in team sport who are honest to self. That's mm, no, it. It's a really good, really good point. This um, this time of the season, so we're recording this, what is it now? Uh, late March. So where some teams have just started in the AFL, just started round one last night, the last couple of nights. And, and that transition from pre-season to to the main season of AFL is, is something I'm really interested in because obviously in, in a lot of community level clubs, there's a huge focus on the running element of the game in the preseason. And then I guess rightly so when the, uh, when there's a game every week and they're, they're quite physical, you know, both to the the clashes that you're, you're having and also just the demands on your body from a running perspective, it can be a little bit difficult to navigate or, or plan the running element of your training throughout the season. And I'm always fascinated to, to know, like obviously one really big hit out a week is, is it's a great step for your fitness level. But when it comes to finals, I, I often wonder how much uh, the form of a player has changed from the start of season to the end. Like obviously your match fitness has improved. Um, but, but I was curious to know how the training at a club like Giants does change from from now or especially maybe even a couple of months ago when you might have been in the midst of like a whole heap of super heavy running um to to maintaining that fitness throughout the season maintaining injuries maintaining the running fitness maintaining the recovery is there is there a certain um structure that you try and use for a a, a club like that or is it um you know to, to to steal the word that's maybe a little bit broadly used uh individualized as much as possible Going back into the 80s, uh, there was a big um, uh, move within Western countries for track and field, especially in terms of periodisation. And we'd been delving into that for a long time. And the 
the Eastern Europeans, particularly the Soviets, they'd been doing a lot of that stuff even back in the 50s. And we talked uh, in those days about tapering and freshening, but in terms of periodization, which is manipulating training loads and volumes and recoveries to get a maximum result, uh, it was only really given a scientific twist, if you like, uh, through once we started understanding works of people like um, uh, Tudor Bomper and Matt Vayev and guys like that. That's been common now in, in track for since the 80s, even before. When I talk about that in football, not so much. I think we've sort of delved in it at freshening players up and so on. However, as we're getting more data in with GPS and, as I said, the real time, you can manipulate the loads of every individual. You know exactly how much work they've done, how much high-intensity running they've done, how much slower running they've done, and how many impacts and so on. So there is an element of that periodisation becoming more prevalent in AFL, but I still think it's a long, long way off the rigidity that you have in a sport like track. Um, and I think it takes, an, it takes an awful lot of experience even doing it for an individual, let alone for a whole team. So mm. at the moment for me, it's fanciful to be thinking that you could do that in a team sport. Uh, it's certainly above my skill set. But it does move in that way where you have your volume first and, you know, there's always a thread of the intensity through it. But as you get closer to the games themselves, then it becomes more intense. One of the big things I think I would bring into that, uh, into this discussion would be, we used to think that it was chunked. So you just had long, slow distance, then, you know, shorter distances and then intervals and then explosive speed, like this beautiful triangle, which looked great on paper when you're giving a presentation. But in reality, it doesn't work that way. And I was only describing to a person a couple of days ago in regard to periodisation in sport that it's really like imagine you've got a, a beautiful rug and the rug is red, white and blue but it's predominantly red at one end, that would be the red is all the fast stuff and that's the end of your season when everything's happening. It doesn't mean at the beginning it's not red, white and blue. It just means that it's more blue and white than red. And so just your focus on those areas changes. That's what it's like, in my opinion, for an athlete, whether it's on the track or in a game like football, that it's your ability to blend the colours. You're the artist as the coach. It's your ability to blend the colours and what's the preference in those to bring about the maximum result where you want to have most of your impact at that end of the rug or that end of the season or that particular competition. There is no substitute for competition, be that on the track or be that for players. And that's why, you know, we mucked around with pre-season cups and all that sort of thing. But even in these early rounds, I'd expect you'll still see players with fatigue because of the um, intensity lift in the game, getting cramps and that type of thing. But they'll soon adapt to that. It takes around about six weeks to adapt to a stimulus. So everything's got to work in for that. And in that, most clubs would have over the last probably four to six weeks have been dropping the volume but lifting the intensity as they get ready for round one. But they'll hit the ground running and then they'll come into that first six weeks. And it's usually after that, everything settles. Then you'll find out how effective the preparation training you put in in those long, hot summer months for football, what, how effective it's been. After about round six or eight, the fitness starts to show. Yeah, yeah, no, that's good. I'm, I'm having flashbacks to a couple of earlier rounds 
uh, in my career, just uh, uh, those calves starting to tighten up towards the end of that third quarter. But um, uh, we've mentioned sort of the speed side, the conditioning side, the adjusting to the uh, that game day competition. But but one thing uh, a lot of the people in my membership ask is about the agility work. And mm-hmm. I'm, I'm curious to pick your brain around this because I know in a lot of the drills that you're doing, there's, I guess, natural agility and, and direction change that are built into that just by default. Um, but is that something that uh, when, when these guys are out on the track, are they doing agility-specific drills or is that something that's more built in or blended into a lot of the other work that's actually just taking place naturally in a game like footy? No, no, we do specific agility work as well and, uh, and teach them how to do that. And uh, that even goes right back into your gym work, making sure that they've got uh, the ability to balance. Um, we call it proprioception. Proprioception is just a way of making people uh, sound smarter than what they really are. It just means knowing where you are in time and space and it's about balance. So if you think uh, you're standing on your on one, one foot, that's pretty easy. If you close your eyes, then you start to shake a bit. That's your body working out where you are in time and space. That's a proprioception around your ankle. If you've rolled your ankle ever, you'll find that you lose your proprioceptive ability. If you've uh, put it in a plaster cast, for example, for six or eight weeks, it's your proprioceptive ability that's an issue. And so we've got to build that back in. Well, we do a lot of preparatory work, not just for footballers, but for all, all sports, uh, to make sure that they've got things like that proprioceptive balance, uh, explosivity and landing um, strength all in place. So it starts in the gym and then you move it off into, uh, into the other areas. Like you'd see sometimes uh, players standing on uh, uh, balance boards and uh, things called dura discs that are moving. That's why trying to uh, get them stability, which down the down the chain um, may prevent things like uh, an ACL. If the ankle can withstand uh, uh, excessive movement, then it won't move up the chain to the knee. So you could prevent a, a significant injury. So that's why they spend so much time on it. Yeah, I know. I wish that would have been great to know back when I was playing because I, I would hate to tell you how many times I couldn't tell you actually how many times I've rolled my right ankle and as a result it's it's sort of become quite floppy it's a little bit loose like I can sit on it on the couch at a wrong angle and it can sort of get stuck in a, a wrong place and and I've sort of dabbled very loosely maybe maybe to my own um what do you say like it, it's been a bit of a bit of a curse in in the progression of its improvement but uh, that proprioception there was one exercise I used to do where I assume this is proprioception where I'd stand on the foot and you would almost touch the different points of a clock so yeah. the physio would go right I want you to touch 12 o'clock six o'clock five yeah. o'clock and then just try you could feel the ankle joint strengthening up it was a yeah. but it was really unnatural because despite the the amount of training agility work that I might have done that was something which is quite foreign so well is that just an opportunity for you to um, yeah first of all just to get to a, a bit of an idea with uh, the role that that joint plays as well as strengthening it before you make more intense direction yes. changes? Yeah. Yes, that's right. And, but it's, it should underpin it anyway. And uh, I have, for my track athletes, we do a program at the end of every session where I get them to uh, warm down with their shoes off and we warm down in the long jump pit in the sand, obviously. Um, and that's to strengthen their, what we call their foot intrinsics. And they do lots of balance work and movement work to strengthen up their feet I mean, shoes are so over-engineered these days that sometimes your muscles aren't doing the work they were actually designed to do. Mm. So I get them to strengthen their feet in in uh, a long jump pit uh, to do that. And uh, for players, as often as we can, we're down at the beach for my part. One of the reasons we're going to the, to the beach is a couple, but it's also to get them moving and walking in the sand. And uh, um, 
when I was structuring pre-season programs, uh, we would do much the players horror. I'd have them on the beach doing sand dunes and sand sprints and everything. They just saw it as another form of torture, and I guess it was. But it was also um, a way of getting their intrinsics very strong. And I think it's an area that's neglected for for athletes. Um, at the end of the day, running speed, whether you're a sprinter, a distance runner, a footballer, basketball, whatever it is, your speed is only determined by two factors. One is the length of your stride and one is the rate at which you take that stride. Now, the rate is probably more important in a sport like um, AFL or, or netball or basketball. But having said that, for a runner, it's still important. If you have got poor proprioception or poor ankle stability, that means that your contact time is going to be increased. That means the longer your contact time's increased, the longer you take to take the next stride, the slower you are. So an easy way to uh, get yourself running faster, in my opinion, is to strengthen ankle and knee and hip. And I'm talking now as an exercise physiologist in a clinical setting, significant number of injuries I see coming into me from the running community come about through poor glute control, poor, poor hip strength, or posterior chain, low back, bum, hamstrings, but they're invariably not very good through their knees and through their ankles. And I think it's also exacerbated that as young kids, we're often told, run with pointed toes, run on your toes. And what that does is increase your contact time. You don't actually run on your toes. You run with a low heel carriage. I'm not suggesting you run on your heels, but you run with a low heel carriage. But the stiff of the ankle joint, the better your or the less your contact time, the faster you'll run. So I spend a lot of time teaching my athletes how to move better. Now, I see behind you there's a picture of a girl skipping. I think that's one of the best methods in which to get that explosivity going within your ankle. And if someone's uh, watching or listening to this and you're thinking, oh, that sort of makes sense, I'll challenge you. Get a skipping rope and skip with that rope as fast as you can for 10 seconds. And now try to do the same thing while pointing your toes downwards so that you've got high heels and low toes. And I'll tell you what, you'll be lucky if you can keep skipping and you'll certainly slow down the rate at which you can skip. Now mm-hmm. apply that sort of thinking to the position of the ankle when you're running and you're about to have an epiphany. Yeah, yeah, beautiful. How many times a week, like I know you said that when you're doing a track session with, with your crew, you'll get them to do that after each session. Is that something you're doing three times, four times a week? Could you do it daily? I'm just thinking because there's there's a variety of athletes that listen to this podcast from from soccer players to runners to footballers, as you can probably tell through this conversation. But um, uh, depending on the level of the athlete dictates how often it is that they're training. Mm. So uh, I was just curious to know for someone listening who might be training for, you know, uh, uh, AFL, uh, how many times a week would you be encouraging this proprioception training? There's a thing called training monotony. So if you're just doing it all the day for the sake of doing, you'll soon get very bored with it. I think if you're talking about muscular, so I made the comment that I think a lot of players are very weak through their low back and glutes. Um, I think you can do that every day, at least every other day, a top of hip control routine. And if someone's listening to this and they think, well, what exactly is that? What would I do? If you can take the time to email me, I will send it to you. I won't charge you. I'll send you what I recommend that you should do for a basic hip control routine. Um, however, when we're talking about things like proprioception, there's an element of, um, uh, of the nervous system in there. It's a neural component to that. And I think if you do that too much, 
you actually lose the effectiveness and it can actually go the other way. It's like trying to do speed every single day. And in essence, you should probably do your real explosivity stuff only probably when you're fresh, well, one one point, but also um, probably only 48 to 72 hours would be preferred. So when you're doing things like that, uh, stuff I'm talking about in the pits and things like that, I'd only do that every second to third day to get mm-hmm. maximum bang for buck. Yeah, it's funny we're talking about that right now because I live down in Point Lonsdale, an hour and a half out of Melbourne, and we live across the road from the beach. And yesterday I thought, oh, I'll go for a walk. The sun was out. I'll go for a walk along the beach. And the tide was well and truly in. So naturally, I, I had my shoes off being on the beach, but I was walking in the soft sand. And I reckon mm. I must have walked four or five K in the soft sand. And this morning, I were, and I could tell as I was walking that my plantar fascia was getting a nice little workout. And uh, yes. I, I'm, I'm quite regularly in bare feet, but not in that particular surface. And, and even this morning, I woke up a little bit. and I thought, oh, my gosh, I can really feel that. It's like the, a post-gym workout day where my, uh, my uh, plantar fascia had, had a little bit of a shock. And uh, I, I took a mental note yesterday as I was walking that this is probably an exercise I need to do more of just to, and, and even not even just my plan of fascias, but I could feel it was, it was just using different muscles because I was quite tempted to go down and just try and walk through the water so I could have a nice, easy, relaxing walk, which it was supposed to be. But as, it, it, as an alternative, um, I was forced to be up there and I could just feel my hips moving a little bit, my knees adjusting, my planners were a little bit more sore. Uh, it was tapping into muscles yeah. and, and joints that I don't think it had a workout for quite some time. No. Uh, well, that's, that's exactly what I'm talking about. And uh, oh, I'm a big fan of that. And uh, and uh, training on sand, I like it a lot. And it, it's ironic, isn't it? Because I, I'm doing this uh, role, having this role at the Greater Western Sydney Giants. And if you actually think about it, we're the club that's furthest from any coast in Australia. All the other clubs are right on a beach. <laughs> literally. <laughs> we're stuck out in uh, Western Sydney uh, holding our ground. <laughs> so you just got to make do with the long jump pitch, you reckon? Oh, we've got to venture into the Swans Territory and go to Bondi or wherever to do it, or go up to the uh, Olympic Park um, athletic track and get him, get him in the long jump pitch. No, uh, it's all good. No, awesome, Quinny. Well, hey, as we said, I know, I know you're a, you're a flat out man. You got plenty on. You've you've made time for us, and and as always, super grateful that you did, especially on such short notice. But. Uh, Quinny, great to great to touch base with you. I always appreciate the uh, the insight, the wisdom, the and the good humour. But um, I might even send you an email when we we hang up because I'll be really interested to to see a couple of those exercises you were uh, you were mentioning. And and I'll, I'll make sure no, I put no. your email in the uh, in the show notes for for everyone listening who's interested in contacting you and, and getting a copy of those exercises as well. Yeah, no, my pleasure, mate. And uh, as I say, if anyone has any questions, uh, just email away and. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll try to answer every every email that comes across my desk. Yeah, and uh, just for, for anyone who's wondering, you've got a pretty good reputation. I don't think there's ever been a text message I've sent that hasn't been responded to. So, Quinny, I'll leave you to it. Have a great weekend and, uh, and, and look forward to catching up with you again really soon. All right. Good luck to you, Tyson. Thanks All very right. much for the chat. Catch Bye you later. Me. See you, everybody. Bye.